You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do the people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. This is Bloomberg Law with June Grosso from Bloomberg Radio. But Taylor Swift can't shake off a lawsuit that claims she stole some of the phrases in her hit song. The pop star is going to have to face a jury after a federal judge ruled that facts in the case warrant a trial. Songwriters Sean Hall and Nathan Butler claim that Swift ripped off certain phrases from their 2001 song, Play Is Gonna Play. Listen to a comparison of the contested lyrics from both songs. Joining me is intellectual property litigator Terrence Ross, a partner at Catton Rosenman. So, Terry, tell us a little about the lawsuit. So this lawsuit is about Taylor Swift's monster song, Shake It Off, which debuted at number one on the Billboard Hot 100 chart and remained there for 50 weeks, almost an entire year, and has sold more than 9 million copies. So it's a monster hit recording. And the plaintiff's song, which also did quite well, quite frankly, called Play As, was on the Billboard Hot 100, never reached number one, but was on it for a while and, and got some playtime, quite frankly. And writers of the Play As song have alleged that their chorus is so substantially similar to the chorus in Taylor Swift's Shake It Off that there had to have been copyright infringement. It seems like those phrases that they're talking about are just common phrases. It doesn't seem like there's anything original about them. Well, that was the original argument that Taylor Swift made when she was first sued. She filed a motion to dismiss the district court, which is the trial court in the federal court system. And she argued that these were common phrases that were not copyrightable. They were not entitled to protection. 
and the district court judge agreed and dismissed the lawsuit. And the plaintiffs took them up to the Ninth Circuit, and the Ninth Circuit reversed and said essentially that the lower court was focused too much on comparing the words as words and failed to consider that the arrangement of the words in the chorus, across the chorus, were sufficient to be copyrightable. No judgment on whether or not there was infringement. The Ninth Circuit simply said there is copyright protection here, and therefore the case was sent back to the district court in California for further proceedings. And that's where we are now with this new decision by the district court. Swift's defense gets a little nuanced for the non-musical. Tell us what her defense is here. So when the case got back to the district court, the defendants, Taylor Swift and her musical companies, filed what's known as a motion for summary judgment, which says, you know, based on all the facts of record, there is no legal claim here. No reasonable jury would ever find for the plaintiff, and therefore we shouldn't have a trial. And the court rejected that motion, denied it, so there will be a trial. But what was fundamentally at issue, and keep in mind, this case is not about the music. This is exclusively about the lyrics of the two songs. And that makes it different from a lot of the cases we've talked about before, like Blurred Lines and Ed Sheeran's songs. It's only about the lyrics here. And what Taylor Swift said was that there simply is not a substantial similarity between the two songs with respect to the copyrighted elements. The mere fact that they both mention players going to play and haters going to hate doesn't mean that she copied in an inappropriate manner that constituted infringement. So the same judge who dismissed the lawsuit in 2018 is now allowing the lawsuit to go forward? Well, he was ordered to allow the lawsuit to go forward by the Ninth Circuit. The way copyright law works is that there's a two-part test that is applied to determine whether or not there is infringement. The first part is called the extrinsic test. That's performed by the judge. And then the second part is called the intrinsic test, which is performed by the jury. And under the uh, part that's performed by the judge, the extrinsic test, you look at external factors that are considered objective factors to determine at an analytical level whether or not there's a case of substantial similarity. And expert opinions from musicologists come in at this point very heavily. And that's a decision that's left to the judge. And the determination he has to make is whether or not in looking at these external factors, there is sufficient belief that no reasonable jury could find infringement. And if he agrees with that, then he can cut off the case, not let it go to the jury. But if he has any doubts, he has to allow the case to go on to part two, which is the subjective or intrinsic test, which has to be performed by a jury at trial, in which they look at the totality of the two works and make a subjective judgment as to substantial similarity. The judge was really sort of stuck here because there is some similarity between the words and the way the words are arranged. He really felt, I think he was correct, that he had to let this pass on to the jury and see what they thought about the total feeling of whether or not there was a substantial similarity. Although he mentioned that he thought Taylor Swift's defense was a pretty good defense and might fare well with the jury. 
So now let's go to his opinion where he talks about the factors to be considered. He said the Ninth Circuit has acknowledged that it has never announced a uniform set of factors for analyzing a musical composition under the extrinsic test and that it did not intend to change that precedent, although it recognizes the difficulties faced by the district court. So the Ninth Circuit basically says, yes, this test is confusing, but we're not going to help you out. Yes, and this is the problem that district judges have with copyright cases. The courts of appeal have said, you have a role to play as a gatekeeper as to whether or not these cases go to trial and get decided by a jury. But we're not going to give you a list of factors to consider. And he references a very famous Ninth Circuit case that involved Mariah Carey's song, Thank God I Found You, which also involved alleged similarities in the chorus of two songs. And in that case, as the judges accurately quoted, the Ninth Circuit just came right out and said, look, we can't come up with a list of standards for the district courts to consider. There's no checklist. You just have to consider anything that seems relevant to you. And that's a very ambiguous thing to tell the judge who actually has to, on a day-to-day basis, administer justice in the copyright realm. And to a certain extent, it's unfair, although I get what the Ninth Circuit is saying is it's hard to come up with a comprehensive list in other areas of copyright law. That hasn't stopped us from coming up police with a partial list. Fair use has four factors that mandatorily must be considered according to the Supreme Court, but you can bring in other factors that may be relevant. I struggle to understand why we can't do that with respect to this substantial similarity test, at least with respect to the extrinsic prong of the test, so as to help out district court judges. What's the biggest obstacle for the plaintiffs at trial? The problem I think the plaintiffs actually face here is Taylor Swift being the defendant. Taylor Swift is not just any recording artist. Taylor Swift is iconic. Take one of my daughters, Caroline, for example. She just loves Taylor Swift and could never believe that Taylor Swift copied anybody (laughs) else's work because she is so awesome. Now, you're going to get a jury pool that has many people that feel that exact same way, and the plaintiff will have no chance to convince them. And yes, they will get the opportunity to voir dire them and to ask them questions to try to sort out people who may be prejudiced. But the reality is a lot of juries, particularly Taylor Swift fans, would die to serve on this jury and actually get to see Taylor Swift up close and personal testifying. And so they're going to be working real hard to get onto the jury, even if they're not being completely forthright during voir dire, and those jurors are going to be in the defendant's pocket from day one, and there'll be nothing that can convince them. And that is the real problem that the plaintiffs have here at trial, is that they're up against Taylor Swift and her legion of fans. Is there a chance of settlement here? It's been going on since 2017. So I have no inside information on settlement negotiations. I'll simply note that Taylor Swift has placed her respect and honor as one of America's great singer-songwriters above considerations as to defense costs. Typically, you get settlements when the defendant says, this just isn't worth the money I'm paying my attorneys. I'll settle for a low-dollar amount, even though I don't believe I did anything wrong. I don't think that's going to happen with Taylor Swift. This is one of her iconic songs, and I don't think she's going to be wanting to be in a position where people can say, ah, she, she took the lyrics from somebody else. Just to talk about the line of cases here, there were several high-profile copyright infringement lawsuits, the Blurred Line case in particular. There was a concern that artists, songwriters would face a ton of lawsuits. Did the tide change with the Led Zeppelin suit? 
I certainly thought the pendulum was swinging back in favor of more reasoned review of these music cases. Keep in mind that this is a lyrics case. Blurred Lines, Led Zeppelin, and Sharon cases involve the actual tunes, the notes, the music, which are very difficult to analyze for a district court judge or lay jurors. Lyrics are something that you really don't expect to have as much difficulty with. And I will say I was surprised that the Ninth Circuit reversed and found that there was something about the arrangement and sequencing in the chorus that was copyrightable. The general black letter rule of law is that short phrases are not copyrightable. But here the court emphasized the arrangement and sequencing of these short phrases. And that is very reminiscent of other music cases involving the tunes, the notes. And so that's introduced an element of complexity here. And we'll just have to see what a jury thinks. I think there is some possibility here that a jury will just go off on their instincts and say, that doesn't that doesn't sound right to me that that's a taking of things that are in common parlance but we'll see that's a taking of things that are in common parlance but we'll see so in light of Bruce Springsteen selling his music catalog for half a billion dollars tell us about the process Taylor Swift is in process of re-releasing the recordings no releasing the re-recordings of her first six albums just tell us why so it would take us an entire another episode to discuss how this came to be. But um, essentially, as a very young artist, and this is common uh, in the music business, Taylor Swift lost the what are called the mechanical rights to her uh, songs. Um, she does not have control over the actual recordings, the tapes, as they used to say, and tried very hard to get control over them, not purely for financial reasons but also um, because she did not want her music and her name being free to be bought and sold uh, as it appeared to be, uh, be, be happening. And she was unsuccessful in getting control over those early works back. And so um, she is set up out upon a process of re-recording all of her early works. Um, each one has the same title except in parentheses afterwards. It's Taylor's version. Um, and this will give her control over uh, the mechanical rights to those particular covers, if you will, of her own original works. If the Bruce Springsteen situation is very different from Taylor Swift's situation. Um, Bruce Springsteen is sort of at the end of his recording career, um, and we wish him many, many years of good life ahead, but also at sort of the end of his life's journey. Taylor Swift is very much at the beginning of it, and it is still at the forefront of her mind that she has decades and decades of recording ahead and and just living experience and 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 wants to have control over her name and her, her songs. You can't blame her one bit um, for for that goal. And, and so she is taking a completely different approach than what Bruce Springsteen recently um, uh, did. She's also had um, uh, at a much earlier point in her life success financially. With her recordings, uh, I've just been reading Stephen Van Zandt's um, autobiography, Bruce Springsteen's best friend, talking about their early days. And you know, despite so much great music that Bruce String Springsteen and the E Street Band uh, produced in those, those early days, um, financially they weren't seeing a lot of the rewards. 
and did not have the same sort of lifestyle that Taylor Swift and modern recording artists seem to have with their success. And and, and so, in a certain respect, um, you know, Bruce Springsteen, who also has um, a number of children, is trying to monetize now the later part of his life um, all of those works. Whereas Taylor Swift is still at the start of her life and career. Thanks for being on the show, Terry. That's Terrence Ross, a partner at Katten Rosenman. Hedge funds, beware. The United States Department of Justice is digging into your symbiotic relationship with research firms. Hunting for signs you tried to engineer stunning stock drops or engaged in insider trading. It's an investigation that's thrilled legions of small investors as trading in at least several dozen stocks is being examined, according to Bloomberg sources. Joining me is an expert in the area, Professor John Coffey of Columbia Law School. Jack, tell us about this investigation and when it started. Well, this is something they've been planning for at least six months or more. They've consulted with some of the leading financial economists in the country. They are doing a very careful review of a large number of cases. But I think what has most bothered them is the exploitation of a short interval between when a group of short sellers publish negative research, often on an anonymous basis or a pseudo-anonymous basis, and then trade heavily in the period between when they release it on one day and the next day when the company is able to respond. When the company responds, it may be able to come back with a convincing explanation or rebuttal, and the market equilibrates and there's not much of a decline. But for that first day, there may be a 20% drop or something in the stock, and the short sellers make out like bandits. That doesn't look like it's fair to the small shareholders who tend to panic when they first hear the news and then get reassured when the company responds, but then it's too late if they've already sold. Hedge funds and researchers do have a relationship that's legal. It is certainly legal, but here is the question. You can certainly hire researchers, but it is arguably deceptive to publish a report as independent research, which gives it greater credibility in the public's mind, when in fact you have already commissioned it and paid for it in advance, and you ask them to research a particular target that you're interested in. So are prosecutors looking for internal documents then of a relationship? I think they will be. I think that they're going to want cases that have what lawyers typically call badges of fraud, something where there's been a bribe, there's been clear insider trading. When you've done something else, so this doesn't just look like ordinary short selling. You have to remember that short sellers are both the heroes and the rogues of the market. They have uncovered the biggest frauds, which often escape the government, often escape the accountants, and often escape everybody except the profit-motivated short seller. In the last two years, cases like the Lucky Coffee case in China or the Wirecard case in Germany, billions were lost, and none of the regular gatekeepers responded in any way until the short sellers came in. Remember, it was short sellers who caught Enron when the accountants missed it and the SEC missed it and no one else saw it. So we need them. They can be heroes of the market, but they can also try to make quick, cheap profits exploiting this time differential or providing research that they have paid for and focused in a way that's quite harsh without disclosing that this was commission research rather than independent research. They were celebrating about this investigation on platforms such as Reddit, StockTwits, and Twitter. 
Those are exactly the retail customers who feel they are exploited by short sellers because they see the bad news and they rush to protect themselves. And the next day or the day after that, the company responds and it looks like only a small difference between their positions. Is this just another front in the Department of Justice's inquiry or is this a new inquiry? Well, I think it's, nothing is totally new, but I think there's much in this that is new. This is the Department of Justice bringing a criminal investigation, not the SEC bringing some charges and settling quietly. People are going to be faced with prison if they are found to have deliberately misled or hidden key facts, particularly the use of the pseudonymous article. That is, rather than putting it out in your own name, you put it out in some new name that you just create the avenging angel, Spider-Man, or whatever. (laughs) And that, it looks credible, but if you knew this were the guys that gave you some overstated advice six times in the last year, you'd give it less weight. So you use this new name and hope that will give it greater credibility, or at least won't carry the negative associations that the short sellers have already created. So how challenging would it be for prosecutors to bring charges against short sellers and win? It depends on the evidence they get, which is why I hope they hold back until they have a case with strong evidence. If the government can show that you were paying people to give them confidential information about their employer, that would be a case that looks like they're paying people to breach their fiduciary duties. Or if you get other cases of insider trading or bribery or deliberate deception, if you call this independent research when you half wrote it, You are a short seller. You are known to be on this side of the aisle, and no one totally trusts you when you put out what you call independent research. But it may be that you wrote half that independent research, and you edited it so that it said exactly what you wanted. That can be deceptive. I was sort of surprised the investigation is being handled by federal prosecutors in Los Angeles. I thought that prosecutors in Manhattan usually handle these types of financial crimes. Well, often these kind of cases are in the Southern District of New York. But remember, the government has only so much resources. And these are the same people, by the way, leading this investigation, who recently won some major and unprecedented cases in which criminal violations were found for spoofing. So they have won original cases in the past. You and about a dozen other prominent securities law professors have urged the SEC to do certain things. Tell us what you want the you think the SEC. Well, I think again, I'm told you that there is this exploitation of this narrow window between when you put out negative research and immediately trade on it, and when the company responds. I think there should be some way to close that window further so that you can't make a bundle of money on the hour or two in which no one else is commenting. And and that has been happening. We also have a problem with what I'll call the pseudonymous research, where you use some new entity that no one's ever heard of. Spider-Man, Avenging Angel, something like that, some kind of fancy new name. And you may have to may have to disclose who is behind that. Now, there's First Amendment problems there, to be sure, because we don't like to restrict speech. But hiding your identity when you have a strong reputation, which will lead investors not to trust you as much, uh, that strikes me as something that could also be misleading. So lawmakers have held several hearings following that meme stock trading frenzy in January. Do you expect lawmakers or do you think lawmakers should do something here? Well, uh, I don't think they will because this is complex and lawmakers like to have a simple target. (laughs) I think the SEC could do more both with respect to short
short selling rules and the general problems. When you look at the GameStop and the AMC trading, you see uh, villains on both sides. You see the gamification of the market, people turning trading into a game at places like Robinhood, which creates an excessive incentive to trade and to trade on options, which is very, very dangerous. On the other side, you see short sellers. GameStop was in part an attempt to squeeze the short sellers, and it did squeeze them. And perhaps they deserve to be squeezed. Uh, but uh, we had people on one side who were uh, or trading excessively because of all these new apps that make it so simple and so attractive, and because they're told that it's free. It's not really free, but they're told that. On the other side, we have people who are engaged in heavy shorting of a stock like GameStop, which to most traditional investors looks like a very shaky company. Oh, it looks like uh, it's uh, the future of the world to those people in the mem in the mem stock group on Reddit. Thanks, Jack. That's Professor John Coffey of Columbia Law School. Success is more than the final destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's discipline. It's teamwork. And it's the drive and passion inside of us that comes before all recognition. It's what Stiefel's been doing for over 130 years. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel's become one of the fastest-growing wealth management and investment banking firms in the country. Our financial advisors go beyond traditional wealth management to provide clients with direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises and a leading middle market investment bank because success is the drive it takes to keep climbing, the passion to keep investing, the best of each of us made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Start your journey at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel Nicholas and Company Incorporated, member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common... It's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. It can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. Former Minnesota police officer Kim Potter is on trial for the fatal shooting of 20-year-old Dante Wright during a traffic stop in April. Potter says she meant to draw her taser to stop Wright from driving away as officers tried to arrest him on an outstanding warrant for weapons possession, but she drew her gun by mistake. Potter is white and Wright was black, and his death in the middle of the trial of former Minneapolis police officer Derek Chauvin for the death of George Floyd set off several nights of angry protests. Joining me is former public defender Krista Groshek, managing attorney of Groshek Law. The prosecution played this video of Potter right after she shot Wright. Hysterical. 
rocking back and forth while laying face down on the lawn with her head in her hands and saying, I don't know, I don't know what happened. Which way does that cut? Does that work for the prosecution or for the defense? I think it works great for the defense. I think that a jury is going to have a hard time convicting somebody that reacted like that. Like, this was clearly an accident. It was unplanned. She was immediately remorseful. She's also fearful that she'd be facing charges herself, so her worst nightmare came true. But it, it wasn't a stretch for her to think she'd be charged. I mean, in this day and age of police scrutiny, and of course, you know, George Floyd was going on at the time of the stop. I think this is really powerful evidence for the defense. I really do. One part of it, as you mentioned, she said, I'm going to prison. Oh, my God, what am I going to do? Now, might the jury interpret from that that she was worried about herself rather than about the boy she just killed? I thought at the beginning of that transcript, if you will, she had said, oh, my God, I just I just shot him or I just killed him. I just killed killed a man. What we know about Potter is that, you know, I don't think she is seen a lot of uh, street action, if you will. Like she, she did a fair amount of, oh, I guess, hostage negotiation. And historically, she's been able to say the right thing to talk people down, right? So she doesn't have to grab her gun or her taser. What I thought was super powerful about the defense opening, and I believe this is true, that she's never had to use her taser before. Never. So I think this was a, a reaction from somebody that, you know, thought pretty clearly based upon how everything went down. She had good reason to believe that he was dead and there really wasn't much to be done. And she was also not in a location, you know, near him to do something. I mean, she just absolutely collapsed really at the scene of where she shot. Sergeant Johnson, who was on the scene, testified. And on the scene, you hear him mm -hmm. say, the guy was trying to take off with me in the car when he's trying to calm her down. It says, Kim, take a breath, take a breath. You're okay. The guy was trying to take off with me in the car. I mean, is it clear what happened? Because he let go of the suspect's arm when he heard Potter say she was going to use her taser. So as Wright started drive off, would he have been in danger? hard to say. You know, a, a very close review of that uh, video is going to be warranted. It's hard to know because he was sort of in over the front seat passenger and at one point holding the, the gear box or holding the shifter. I think at one point he was reaching out um, to Mr. Wright as well. So I think a really close review and a re-review and a third and a fourth and a 20th review of that tape is going to be super important. And notice that on cross, when the defense attorney asked Johnson what would happen, he said, I'd, I'd be injured. And then the defense attorney said, seriously injured, maybe even dead, right? So he sort of pulled that out of him. Does the jury have to think that that officer might have died? I don't think they have to think that that he would have died. I mean, whether it was serious injury or death, you know, certainly it's a more compelling argument that she had to choose between two lives and, you know, like a split second. Right. But the fact that there's an officer inside of a car that might be, you know, driven off and he might've died or it might've been seriously injured. I think the calculus is the same. Um, you know, defense attorneys are allowed to lead on cross. So that's what he was doing to, you know, get the answer to where he wanted it to be. But either way, I, I think it's sufficient for a jury to reasonably conclude that, Hey, she had to do what she had to do in that moment to protect her partner. That He was asked whether Potter had the right to use, this is Johnson again, whether Potter had the right to use deadly force. Is it clear that she had the right to use deadly force to prevent 
Dante, right, from driving from the scene? Well, I think the way deadly force comes in is just what we, you know, were discussing in your previous question. If there was going to be serious harm to somebody else or death, then I think, yes, she did. If we're talking about what the state wants us to believe is, is the case that, you know, he had a warrant, right, and he, you know, may have had an order for protection or he may have had, you know, a gun issue out there, and I think that gets a little dicier. But the fact that that other officer was in the car, right, to some degree for a period of time, I think that a jury can reasonably conclude she had to do something to prevent bodily harm to her fellow officer. I think that's fair. So they pulled him over for driving with expired license plates. And also, Minnesota has a law that prohibits motorists from hanging air fresheners and other items from their yep. rearview mirrors. Well, um, the way I've heard it argued is that it's, it's kind of a stupid law because, number one, a lot of people do it, whether it's an air freshener or it's, you know, some sort of decoration from a rosary to a pair of, you know, fuzzy dice, right? Like lots of people mm-hmm. do it. And it doesn't necessarily have anything to do with criminal activity, right? So um, I've heard it argued in that way that, you know, this is something that will justify a lot of stops that really don't have a valid basis. Th- that law has been challenged a bunch and it's made on the books. <laughs> so it is a valid stop. Yeah. Okay. So a valid stop. And then when they find out that there's a warrant out for him, that raises their level of concern, according to the defense? For sure. He's got a warrant out. I think it's on a weapons charge. There's also, I think, a question about um, who the front passenger, who the front seat passenger is because he's got a order for protection out against him. So is he in the presence of the person he's not supposed to be with, right? Um, I, I, that kind of, you know, ratchets things up. The other part is when they get him out of the car and they try to put handcuffs off on him, Officer Lucky's pretty clear. He's he tells them on video, you know, don't tense up, man, don't do it. You know, all of these things are, you know, sort of upping the ante, upping the ante. Then we've got the sergeant who's, you know, half a body is inside the car. And it looks like it's pretty clear that Mr. Wright has intentions of driving away. I mean, one thing that hasn't really been addressed is the danger he presented to other people on the road. Anytime there's a fleeing, right, and somebody's driving crazy to get rid of, you know, a police officer who's following them, it's dangerous to other people on the road. Sometimes it can end, like, with a crash. Sometimes it can end with, you know, them them throwing out items to get the car to stop. Like, it presents a threat to, you know, the public at that point as well. She's a 25-year veteran of the force. She's had no incidents against her. I think it is so critical that she take the stand and she explain things from her perspective, what was going on in her mind, what was happening, you know, in her heart, like, why does she do the job of police officer? I think that is so critical to really humanizing this case. And and that's the only way the jury is going to see things from her point of view. And the way the defense structured their opening was to really humanize her. And she has to be the person to drive that home. That's the only way that gets in. She's charged with first degree manslaughter and second degree manslaughter. What would each of those require? So I'll start with second degree. Second degree um, manslaughter requires essentially that she take an unjustified risk that's dangerous under the circumstances. I think that's pretty hard for them to prove, right? And then the other charge, I think, is even more hard for the state to prove because it, it requires her to have had some intent to assault him, 
right? Which then gets to this question of, was it reasonable for her to even pull out her taser? Was it reasonable for her, right, to use the deadly force that she did under the circumstances? So the, the first-degree manslaughter charge really puzzles me. And, you know, I, I've been listening to the testimony critically to figure out if that's really the angle that, you know, that the state has, that, you know, she had some kind of an intent to assault him. Um, I think that's a pretty big stretch under the circumstances. Um, but, you know, the second-degree manslaughter, the charge we typically see for officers in this situation is, you know, did she take a risk that was too great, right? And that's why the defense continues to build up, you know, all, all of these um, factors, right, from officer inside the car, he's resisting arrest, he's about to take off, who is the front seat passenger, and you know, we know that he had a warrant on a gun, on a gun charge, right? What's going to happen next? And she had seconds to think about it. That, that, that's what I think, you know, makes this analysis so much easier than, for example, the analysis in the Chauvin trial, right? And, and by easier, I mean easier for a jury to look at it through the defendant's eyes and, and acquit them because she had seconds to react. This all went really fast. Harder for the jurors to get, you know, into um, Chauvin's um, perspective that he should just keep kneeling on somebody for nine minutes, right? It's, it, they're apples and oranges. And in this case, I think that the video is so compelling for her, all of it. So obviously she made a mistake. Does that... Lead to second degree manslaughter, though. Not if you think her choice, you know, to, you know, pull that taser out was reasonable under the circumstances. It's not a question of, you know, was it reasonable for her to pull a gun? If you believe she committed, you know, that that move and error, right? She thought she had her taser, but she reached her gun. That's the mistake. But if you believe she had a basis to try to stop this person from taking off, then her actions are justified and there's no crime here. Because this is, you know, this is the third case that I can think of involving a black man being killed by a police officer in Minnesota in recent years. Do you think that there would be outcry if she is found not guilty? Probably. I mean, what I'm noticing even from, you know, the attorney commentary, you know, different uh, stations and outlets are, are showcasing is that the attorneys are really you know, of different minds about this. And, you know, I, I suspect that there is a certain, you know, population who, you know, are going to say, wow, you know, this is really a, a miscarriage of justice if there's not a conviction. And I think that there is another camp that will say, well, you know, finally, this lady got acquitted because this was really truly a mistake. And our case is so different from the other officers that were required to go on trial. I think it'll be very divisive. Thanks, Krista. That's former public defender Krista Groshek, managing partner of Groshek Law. And that's it for this edition of the Bloomberg Law Show. I'm June Grosso, and you're listening to Bloomberg. I'm Alex Rodriguez. And I'm Jason Kelly. From Bloomberg, this is The Deal. Each week, you're here as in conversation with business icons. This show will explore deal-making across sports, media, and entertainment. That is a harsh lesson in business. Sports is and not uh, as simple you know, as bringing a bunch of big names together. I didn't want to do another stomp you out speech. It opened so, up so many more doors. The show is called The, the deal. deal. Listen to The Deal wherever you get your podcast, And watch on Bloomberg Originals, Bloomberg Television, or BTV+. Plus.